This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. If you recognize that music and know anything about who composed it, then you know who my guest is today. I've been a big fan of his for years and am honored that he is joining me today on Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. John Tesh is an internationally celebrated recording artist, concert pianist, composer, and national radio and television personality who overcame a terminal cancer diagnosis by relying on steadfast determination, grit, and faith. John Tesh, welcome to my podcast. Thank you. I'm just here trying to live my best best life. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that song we just played is called Round Ball Rock, and many have hailed it as the greatest sports theme in television history. You composed it for NBC Sports Basketball, and it was also brought back as part of NBC television coverage of the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. It's so iconic. Do you still get excited when you hear about it? I do. Like songs are like your kid. You know, you work on them, you work on them, you work on them, and you send them out there and see what happens. You can never tell. That particular song was written on my answering machine when I was in Europe, and I called my answering machine in New York. Hi, this is a message for me about the NBA theme. Here's an idea. It goes like this. It's the most bizarre story ever. It's a theme that's really taken on a life of its own. The funniest thing is if you search the name Round Ball Rock on YouTube, you find thousands of people who have learned how to play it on everything from clarinets to nose flutes to Casio keyboards. It's great to see the life that it's had. You still play that voice message on that old machine. Are you ever afraid like it's going to maybe wear out at some point in time? Oh, I, listen, I've dubbed it off, you know, like oh, good. <laughs> four or five times. We have a copy of it. In fact, we just played last week. We played a concert out in Los Angeles. Even if it's a Christmas show, we always tell that story. And a lot of my life has been sort of goofy risks that a lot of them turned into good stuff, and some of them didn't. <laughs> There's always video along with it. So that song gets played with giant screen with basketball video behind us. The cool thing about writing sports music, which I love, I've always loved it, and I started when I was actually an announcer for CBS on the, on the Tour de France bike race, which was my first event for CBS. It's eight hours of programming and 2,654 miles of, uh, of bike racing that you've never seen before. But what happens is, you, you know, you write a song and then gymnasts, you know, will use it for their floor exercise. Or, you know, we had a, a Russian Paris team that found a copy of a song I wrote called Barcelona. I think the reason is I usually write linear songs, uh-huh. not really sort of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. And part of it is I didn't have the talent to do that. So I just, well, I'm just going to write what I'm thinking. And that's where the basketball theme came from. Uh, it seems to have worked out for you okay. <laughs> that one did, yeah. Yeah. Many people also know your name and, of course, your face from your days as co-host with Mary Hart on Entertainment Tonight, which you worked with her for 10 years. And they also know you for your award-winning music career. But the fact that you even ended up in music and entertainment is really quite extraordinary. From the time you were in first grade, your dream was to become a director or composer, and you wanted to go to prestigious music school. 
But your dad basically said, no way. That wasn't a career. It was a hobby. Talk about dashing a childhood dream. My goodness, how'd you deal with that? Well, I acquiesced. If you've ever seen the movie with uh, Robert Duvall called The Great Santini about this naval commander, a fighter pilot, who pretty much ran his house the way he ran his troops under his command, that was my dad. He was a, a World War II veteran. He was a, a chief petty officer commander in the Navy off the coast of Okinawa in an amphibious assault craft. So his job was to call in the anti-aircraft fire off of his ship to protect the, the flagships in the, in the fleet. And these are pilots from Japan who are basically trying to kill him and everybody in the fleet, right? Yeah. You, you come out of that, and nobody knew what PTSD was back then. Mm. And so he ran a tight ship in our house. I have two older sisters. They were 11 and 9 years older than me. And it was, you know, children were meant to be, I guess, seen but not heard. And so I spent a lot of time in the basement making things. Taking them apart. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, you obviously, you, you've dipped into my book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had terrible ADD. And I just thought whenever I saw something, I said, let's find out how this works, you know, without getting clearance. <laughs> Actually, that phrase. I've never spoken to that before, but that phrase, without getting clearance, is, is sort of the story of my 70 years, almost 70 years of life. What happened was my father, who was the vice president of Haynes Underwear, decided that, yeah, I mean, like a lot of people did back then, so you, you got to have something to fall back on. Right. And so he said, this is great. I'm glad you got into music school and all the rest of that stuff, but you're not going. And you're going to go to NC State. I already enrolled you early admission. And you're going to study textile chemistry and you're going to carry on the underwear legacy of our family. You know, so, I just can't even imagine textile chemistry for you. I mean, it just seems so surreal. Yeah, I couldn't either. <laughs> I stuck it out for about, I don't know, four or five semesters. And I went to my organic chemistry classes. I took uh, calculus one and two quantitative analysis. What happened was my friend who was on the soccer team with me, Steve Thomas, he said, you know, there's a course that you could use to raise your GPA because mine was hovering around, you know, nothing. And he says it's called Radio, Radio and Television 101. And like you, like a lot of people that I, I know, I got bit by that bug. Yeah. And this was 1973. That was it for me. I stopped going to my other classes. All I did was make radio programs. And I went to my professors and said, I really want to change my major. And most of them were just happy to get me out of their class because it was ruining their reputation. <laughs> I went to my statistics professor. He said, nope, you're not getting out of this class. You're going to tough it out. So I'm begging the guy. I sent him notes and stuff. And no, 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 no. So on advice from a fraternity brother who did this all the time, quote unquote, mm -hmm. and I might have had a beer at the time. <laughs> or two. <laughs> I, I, thank you. I signed my, you noticed, I signed my professor's name to the drop ad card. And everything was fine for a couple of months. I was like, wow, that was great. I could probably do that again. And then during summer break, my dad got a letter from the university saying that, that I had broken the honor code and I got been reported as I'm being suspended indefinitely and F for the course. And my dad called me in with a scotch in his right hand and a tenth cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And he uh, just said, you know, the whole thing, you've shamed me, you've shamed mom, you've shamed the entire underwear division of Haynes. You shamed mom's bridge club. Yeah, a whole list of stuff. I think, how much does it take to shame the whole underwear division, you know? <laughs> and so he, he threw me out of the house. And said, you're not welcome here until you figure yourself out. You end up homeless because of that, right? Yes. I got in my Volkswagen fastback, and I didn't know any place else to go. So I drove back to the campus at Raleigh. I lived in a park there. And can you imagine? That was so stupid of me to do because here I am in a park, and walking by me every day to class is all of my friends and fraternity brothers and everything. And 
just try to hang out with kids that are in class when you've been thrown out of school. You know, yeah. my girlfriend, Susan, broke up with me. And so, yeah, I lived in a pump tent for about three months, pumped gas, worked for C.C. Mangum Construction. Finally, I'd had enough. All I was left with was just begging God and eating Cheetos and ringdings. I went to a friend of mine and said, I got to get a job in radio. I just have to. He goes, well, you have to have a demo tape. He helped me break into the campus radio station because I was already a criminal. And I made a, a demo tape out of just, you know, like doing the, uh, the helicopter report by hitting my chest. And go, oh, traffic is really heavy on the I-40. And then I would hold my nose uh, to do the uh, correspondent from, uh, from Cairo. This is Maurice Gindy in Cairo. Today, Dr. Henry Kissinger had this to say about the possibility of peace in the Middle East. And in the middle of this, I'm, so, I'm typing on a, on a manual typewriter to, to emulate the teletype. And then I go, this is Henry Kissinger, and I think there is a possibility of peace in the Middle East. So terrible imitations, you know, <laughs> all kinds of sound effects, you know, bam, bam, bam. Welcome back to WKIX 2022. You know, now let's go up in the traffic. Now it's time for sports and weather, you know. And I imitated all the sports. Guys. So I, I took this tape around, heard nothing for the longest time, because I duplicated the tape and had, took it to like four radio stations, you know. And here I am with candles, with cutoffs and hair down on my shoulders. Didn't have money for a haircut. I got this call from a guy named Scott White, who's still my friend. He was the news director for WKIX, which was the Rick D's station, if you remember Rick D's. Oh, yeah. And he said, did you do, did you do this all by yourself? It was like a 15-minute demo. And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, listen, if you want a job this badly, I've got to give you a job just to see what happens. <laughs> and he was sitting next to me when I was inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame two years ago. It was, it was incredible. So he gave me a job playing the religious tapes on Sundays. <laughs> you know, Every now and then, one of those tapes would break because I was already a criminal. And I would just sort of flick the, the, uh, the microphone on live and I would do my own show on Sunday mornings. And oh finally the general manager called me and said, you know what, you're ruining our Sundays. He said, but you got a lot of talent. Let's let you do the weekend news. And that's how I got my first job. Uh. And, and this could never happen now. A lot of people have said this. And it was exactly 36 months to the day from I was in the top 10, made that, that reel-to-reel tape. I was anchoring the news at the CBS flagship station in New York City in the same building as Walter Cronkite. With John Stossel, who I just talked to yesterday, and Meredith Vieira, Brian Williams was in there, and Bill O'Reilly, and all in this newsroom. Wow. It was just like lightning struck for me. And, yeah. And as I say on stage, that's how I know there's a Holy Spirit when you look it after me. No kidding. I mean, you really took all of those life experiences and you created what some would call a meteoric rise in the industry. And you have this award winning career. And you talked about being in New York City, you were also in Nashville before then. You hosted international sporting events, the 1992 and 1996 Olympic Games. You mentioned the Tour de France earlier, Wimbledon, and you eventually get to entertainment tonight. But then, after 10 years, you walk away from entertainment tonight, a seven-figure job, I might add, to finally pursue a full-time music career. That had to be a very scary move at the time. You know, we were out to dinner with my attorney, best friend, best man, last night and his wife who was with me when I met my wife, Connie, which is another story, 31 years ago. And he was the guy who put together the insurance for this event called Live at Red Rocks, which enabled me to leave yeah. uh, Entertainment Tonight. And at that time, PBS was doing these great shows like The Three Tenors and Yanni. But when I pitched them my idea, they said, well, listen, nobody knows who you are as a musician. We can't fund that. But if you, if you do the event then we'll take a look at it. Mm -hmm. The event took all of our savings, Connie and I, and God bless my wife for, you know, for, for believing in me. Four songs in, it started raining like sideways at Red Rocks. Like was, cats and dogs rain. It was a cats and dogs rain. 
so the orchestra left and we were left there alone with just our core band and the audience didn't leave because they were so used to that kind of weather. They just put on their slickers and their, and their umbrellas and stomping their feet because we thought we were always done. You know, it was 15 cameras pointed at me and was, that was it. No orchestra, no show. And they were just insisted that we play in the rain. And we did. We played four more songs in the pouring rain. I mean, water coming out of my piano. My guitar player, you're getting shocks and sliding sideways. And the crowd was going nuts. And after those, those four songs in the rain, God stopped the rain and the moon came out and the orchestra came back and we finished the show. And when PBS tested that thing after we edited it, it ended up pledging more money than the three tenors on a Sunday night. And that's really what, what started the whole thing. I encourage people to find it because it's phenomenal. I mean, that show raised almost $15 million yeah. at, at this point for, you know, for PBS. And more importantly for me, it started my music career. When I announced that I was, I was leaving Entertainment Tonight, I still had six months on my contract. And not many people know this. Paramount Television sued me to, keep, mm-hmm. to hold me to my contract. And so here's my, my best friend, Chuck, little attorney Chuck, against these killers at Paramount TV. The woman comes in in front of the judge and she says, we are going to have an injunction against each one of John's venues to prevent him from touring. We will sur- sue the venues. And I'd already sold all these tickets. And if the judge hadn't said, I'm not going to force this guy to work for you, I would have lost everything. Yeah. And when you look back at it, it's like, hey, kids, don't take this risk. Don't (laughs) Don't do do that. Don't do this. (laughs) You mentioned your absolutely beautiful and talented actress wife, Connie Selica. And she really was one of the first people to kind of affirm that your heart was in music. But we have to talk about her because the story of how you guys met and you blew off your first date with her that you planned. Right? You meet her in the gym. You're going to go on this date the next day and you just blow it off. Why did you do that? <laughs> you know, when I tell this story, my, I don't ever tell it at a dinner party. My wife will tell it at a dinner party. We'll be out with clients or something, people who sponsor our show, you know, and she'll start telling the story. About halfway through the story, when she gets to the part where I stood her up, all the women at the table will go to the bathroom together, <laughs> you know, so, uh, and, and they come back and they, and they never look at me again. You know, and <laughs> men understand this. Okay. So I walked into a gym in Palm Springs in 1991. I was doing an event and Connie Selica was shooting a show with Greg Evigan from My Two Dads. She happened to be in the gym when I walked in there and we were the only two people in the gym. She's on a bicycle and she was dressed like you women dress when you go on bicycle. I mean, everything that, I don't know what it was, unitard, leotard. uh, (laughs) We're dressed right. (laughs) Reimagined, tard, you know, everything. And it was like the headband and all this stuff. And she's got headphones on. And I come in with a mustard stain on my shirt, socks that don't match, and glasses that have gaffer tape on them to hold them on. Because I didn't expect I was going to see Aphrodite or anything. And I looked at her and I said, oh, my gosh. Because I was was a huge fan. You were smitten. Oh, oh, my God. Well, just gorgeous. And listen, I was on entertainment tonight, right? So I interview people all the time, but I I never considered myself one of them, right? (laughs) Never have. (laughs) Here I see this woman who's like come off of People Magazine, basically. She was voted one of the top five most beautiful women in the world. So I go over and not thinking I'm ever going to talk to this woman. And and I'm not thinking, right, because I'm a little heady. So I jump up on the the chin-up bar and then realizing when I'm up there that I can't pull myself up. (laughs) And this is really a hilarious part of the book. And so I just sort of swing around there, pretending that I'm like stretching and stuff. And I got stuck in the sit-up machine. And finally, I'm walking out, and she goes, "John, John Tesh, is that you?" And so I whip around, 
And I go, oh, Connie Selk, I didn't see you there. And she goes, what were the, and she's from the Bronx, <laughs> we're the only two people in the gym. You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And so I talked to her for a little while, and then I said, I'm coming back on Friday, which is like Wednesday. I'm coming back on Friday. Maybe we can get together for a drink. And she goes, well, that sounds great. So I go up to my room. I write a note to her with a CD of the Tour de France, music from the Tour de France that I had written. Hey, Connie, it was great meeting you. If you're going to ride a bicycle, why not ride it to the music uh, that was written for the greatest bike race on earth? It's really fun. It's really cool, huh? Oh, very cool. Very smooth. <laughs> and then see you Fridays. And I get the bellman from the 10 spot and have him take it to her, her room. I'm going back with Chuck, my buddy, back to Los Angeles from Palm Springs. I tell him a story. He goes, wow, this is exciting. He goes, I said, you know what? I can't do it. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, you know, she's probably got... I don't know, like five guys that she's dating this week. I mean, I just can't, I can't do it. He goes, John, you're crazy. Three days pass, and it's time for us to go back to Palm Springs to work. And he says, so you're going to show up, right? And I said, no, 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 let's just go have a drink at the bar and just hang out. And that's what we did. And Connie actually got dressed and was waiting for this date. And I never called her, but I created this fiction in my head that I never really asked her out, right? Oh my gosh. The next day, with a little bit of a tequila hangover, I realized what I had done. I bombed her answering machine. I did research on her. I kept calling her. and You eventually win her back, which is the good news. <laughs> I was substituting for a radio guy in, in Los Angeles, and the producer says, do you know any famous people that we could call and do an interview with? And I said, yeah, I know Connie Selica. She goes, oh, really? And she goes, well, okay, you know, do you have a number? And I said, no, I don't have a number, but call her agent. But don't tell her it's me. I want to surprise her. <laughs> You're so bad. <laughs> she called the agent. 6.30 in the morning, Connie's on the phone, on a live radio thing. And the guy who was co-hosting me, who did this whole story, asked her out for me. And she said, yeah, whatever, okay. And we went out on a first date, and it was five hours long, and that was the end of it. Well, That was the beginning, I should say. Yeah, that was the beginning. It's such a great story. She truly has been your rock ever since, and no more so, perhaps, than on that fateful day, May 23rd, 2015. You're 63 years old, and you're diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of prostate cancer. And your doctor basically says, get your affairs in order at best 18 months. I can't even imagine what that felt like. Yeah, it sounds like you were in the room with us. I don't know if you've ever had your clock cleaned, as we say, in the lacrosse world. I was a lacrosse player in college, and, and it's a rough sport. There are times when you'll be going for the ball, and then a guy comes out of nowhere, a guy from the right and a guy from the left, and it's legal for them to do this, and they just run you over, and then you hit the ground, and then there's a high-pitched sound. Like that, until you really sort of get your bearings back. And that was the same feeling as hearing, get your affairs in order. Wow. You know what, if Connie hadn't been there or she, or she hadn't, hadn't been a part of my life, that exact woman, Connie Selica, I wouldn't have made it. I probably would have just crawled into a hole and drank myself to death. Instead, we just read everything we could possibly read about prostate cancer. It's a very rare form of cancer, and there was a lot of weapons that we used. Yes. We used spiritual weapons. We used the weapons of Johns Hopkins and MD Anderson, Christopher Logothetis there, the great doctor. And at a certain point, I let it take a toll on our marriage. Right. I was drinking scotch every day and chasing it with Vicodin and because it, you didn't get anything when you're a quote unquote terminal cancer patient. And I became a cancer patient. I spoke like a cancer patient. And then one day, Connie, uh, we got toe to toe in my, in my studio and she just said, I've had enough. I'm not going to watch this. I'm not going to watch you kill yourself. I'm not going to put any time into this anymore and need to clean it up or uh, you can clean it up without me. 
Mm. I, I don't know how many women would actually say that because well, don't you feel sorry for me? I'm a cancer patient, you know. Mm. She would not have it. Well, the good news is you are a cancer survivor now, and we can say that. And your story of your life, career, and overcoming terminal cancer is so beautifully written in your memoir, Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grit, and Faith. And John, I read it over the weekend, and I absolutely loved it. It, it made me laugh out loud with some of your shenanigans. It brought tears to my eyes, and I felt such a connection, I think, as memoirs often do, because we sometimes see a part of ourselves in someone else's journey. What do you hope readers will take away from this wonderful book? First of all, thank you for reading it. You've honored me. Everybody kept telling me I needed to read the Bruce Springsteen autobiography. I'm like, and so I read it, and it's exactly what happened to me. I saw myself not only in his struggles in his life, uh, and maybe even in some of his successes to a smaller degree, but also I saw the, the time when it was happening. Mm-hmm. I, I think suffering is really what I wanted to talk about. You can't really put that in the title. Nobody really wants to do that. But <laughs> Nobody's going to want to read that. <laughs> the guys at HarperCollins who were great, they said, well, you know, we know how busy you are, John, uh, and you haven't written a book before. Why don't we hire a, a ghostwriter? And basically what they do for people who don't know is they, they will interview you about your life and then they'll transcribe it and then they'll write it. Hopefully they're, they're writing it in your, your speaking voice. I tried that for about two months and I was like, oh gosh, not only is this not my voice really, but I'm not going through the process. Right. I write radio stuff and blogs and stuff like that, but I'd never written a book. I was frightened by it. So anyway, I I called them up and just said, I need to do this myself. They're like, what? (laughs) And so I missed four deadlines and finished it in two and a half years. But what happened was my cancer returned and I was in another battle in the middle of writing it. And then another battle in the middle of writing it. Right. It was a living document, if you will. And I do believe that people who read this book, you will see a part of yourselves and you will understand what Viktor Frankl, the author of Man's Search for Meaning, the Holocaust survivor, mm-hmm. said, suffering is a gas. It's very personal and it fills completely the container which it inhabits. Mm-hmm. Meaning that my suffering is my suffering, yours is yours. And it doesn't have to be pain or, or chemo vomiting. It can be grief of losing a loved one. I was really understanding and then transcending suffering as I wrote this book. Mm. One of the things that I found so profound in your book is how from a very young age, John, despite being dissuaded away from music by your dad, you visualized not only your media career into reality, but also your music career, even your famous Red Rock concert in the pouring rain, which you just talked about. At 12 years old, you saw the Beatles perform on that same stage, and you dreamed one day you would perform there too. What is the lesson in that for all of us? It's biblical too. I mean, there is Proverbs eighteen twenty one: death and life are in the power of the tongue. Life is in the power of the tongue. If you speak ill, death, if you become a cancer patient, if you talk to yourself, talk about yourself as a cancer, you will become that. In the book of Romans, there is God calls forth those things that be not as though they were. And imagination and visualization is all over the Word of God in the Bible. And it's basically telling you that whether you're feeling sick or whether you're struggling trying to figure out how to be a musician or an actor or, or an author, you need to figure out a way to see that as finished. Mm-hmm. You need to understand that if you can see it finished, then you'll start to understand the work that's going to take to get there. And I've always been a very visual person. And since I was a little kid, 
I was able to see myself. I can see it right now. I was able to see myself sitting at a grand piano. I can tell you exactly where it is on the stage. I can, and I can go through every single instrument in the orchestra and show you who's sitting in which seat. To my left were 7,000 people in the Red Rocks Amphitheater. To my right was an 80-piece orchestra and my, and my band. I remember the makeup artist said to me, you're not nervous? And I said, no. I said, I already know how this ends. I walked out onto stage with a smile on my face, which of course was magnetic for the audience because they, they knew the whole story of here's the guy who left this job to follow his dream, you know? And so right in the middle of it, when it starts raining, it's like, well, this is over. But as my pastor once said to me, you know, John, you were backing into a blessing because what happened was when it rained, the cameras were still rolling and that like 12 minute segment became the one segment where they raised the most money on the local PBS stations because people felt so sorry for me. They just they started donating. Well, not only that, it's it's a great show. And, you know, I haven't seen you perform live one of these days. That's one of my dreams. But when I see you in your videos and performing on stage, you're just in your element. And I love seeing that. You've won six music Emmys, two Grammy nominations, four gold records, seven PBS television specials, and eight million records sold. I mean, that's quite extraordinary. Congratulations on all of that. And now you have returned to your early radio days. You and your wife, Connie, created a self-syndicated radio show, the John Tesh Radio Show, Intelligence for Your Life. And it's heard on something like more than 300 radio stations around the world. So what is the main focus of the show, John? Doing the show that I would want to listen to. Hmm. I was on the road 20 years ago doing 50 concerts. My wife was home with a baby. It was getting to the point where I'd come home and my kid Prima didn't know me, basically, and my, my stepson, Gib, wasn't interested. And Connie, I could just see it on Connie's face that I was just wearing her down. And so I realized that I found my dream, but I had to find a compromise. Maybe I could cut it in half. What I mean, 50 shows, you know, you're like three months away from your family. I mean, it's like being deployed. I don't want to get into television again. It's a young man's game, you know. And what about getting back into radio? So I looked at the landscape, and it was all taken. You know, Fluffy Danny and the Weasel in the morning zoos, you know. And there was the, uh, the friendly midday guy. And then there was Delilah at night. You know, there was like love songs at night. Then I read this book by Jack Trout called Differentiate or Die. Uh, and another book by Al Reese called Focus. And I thought, wow, how can I differentiate my, how can I come up with something completely different than what's on the air? I called up my friend, Scotty Myers, who's still our executive producer. He was actually promoting my music to radio stations. I said, hey, we're going to do a syndicated radio show, and it's called the John Tesh Radio Show Intelligence for Your Life. He goes, what is that, a live seminar or something? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, it's great. Start calling radio stations. He goes, you have to have a demo. That sounds familiar, right? Yes, it does. They're not going to know what the heck that is. And I said, it's all the information you need to be the smartest person in the room. He goes, what? Hang on. He goes, I'm writing this down. I said, I said, yeah, we're here to move you from the place you are right now to the place you were meant to be. He goes, okay, hang on. I'm writing that down. He goes, well, I got some guys I can call. And, and how long is it? I said, it's a three-hour show. And I'm hosting it, and they can play their own music and whatever. So he starts calling stations because I told him to. He got six stations that said yes to it. So now, like, we were a week away from putting the show on the air, and we didn't have a show. Like, I was literally plummeting from a plane with a parachute that wouldn't open, you know? (laughs) And I just started writing, just writing day and night, never stopping. And, and And we built this show. And slowly but surely, it started to catch on. And then we realized that in order to be profitable, we needed to turn it into a daily show, a daily five-hour show. We still only had like six or seven stations. Once again, I went to Connie and she said, yeah, I really believe in this. We took some loans. We built a studio out and the satellite transmission and all the rest of that stuff. And in three years, we went from six stations to 120 and we were, and we were profitable. And 
and then we we did a line extension where Connie does a show called Intelligence for Your Health, which is just interviews with high level health experts. What I love about the show is it's forced learning every day. Yeah. This really helped me through my cancer battle because I couldn't afford to miss a day of work. And so there were times when I was so sick and I'd be on my back and the microphone would be on top of me, you oh know? Oh my gosh. But we love doing the show. It's really, it's the way we live our life and, and we just get to broadcast all that stuff out to millions of people. Well, for people who want to learn more about your radio show, your music, and of course, your wonderful book, Relentless, Unleashing a Life of Purpose, Grid, and Faith, just go to teshtv.com. That's T-E-S-H-T-V dot com. John, it has been an absolute joy to listen to your stories today on my show. Thank you so much for sharing those stories, your purpose, grit, and your faith with all of us today. My pleasure. I'm still anxious to talk to you some more. This has been great therapy for me. Oh, well, good. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> well, to all of our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. And may you find the inner strength to live your best life, whatever that means for you. And of course, I invite you to share this episode with all your family and friends as well. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud. Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.